Barrick Gold drops its year end and gold crests $1,900 an ounce. You're listening to Kickle Roundtable. I'm your host, Michael McRae. Kickle correspondent Paul Harris is in. Traveling Paul, how are you? Hey, Michael. Very well, thank you. How are you? Very good. Very good. Off the top, I want to remind listeners, editor Niels Christensen has spun off his own show to talk macro. It's a fantastic listen with great guests. Name of the show still to be determined. Look for a show to drop into the feed each week. Our guest this week is a person who is the center of two of mining's biggest trends, the need for battery metals and decarbonization. It's Lyle Tritton. Lyle, welcome to Kiko. Thanks, Michael. I'm excited to be here. Lyle has worked for nickel giant Sherrick. He is now a development manager at Giga Metals, and he runs his own consultancy. Lyle, we're going to get into a big discussion about nickel. We're also going to talk about decarbonization. Uh, by way of introduction, what project are you working on now that is exciting you? I'm working with Giga on the Turnigan Nickel Project, which is really exciting. It's been around a while, but as a, as a lower grade, large, large deposit, it's really got the potential to pop with higher nickel prices. So that's pretty fun to work on. Let's turn to macro and a macro week it was. On Thursday, we had a nice rally in gold, silver and platinum. You saw gold through $1,900 an ounce. That's right, $1,900 an ounce. Silver to 24 and platinum to 1,000. A mix of geopolitical tension and inflation pushed metal prices higher. The US insists that Russia is poised to invade Ukraine, which has intelligence to back up the claim. Russia still insists no plans to invade, but despite having amassed over 150,000 troops on Ukraine's border. On the inflation front, WTI and Brent oil pushed through $90 a barrel. Home sales data from the National Association of Realtors came in stronger than expected. Paul, let's start with Barrick Gold. What did Barrick tell us this week? Well, um, Barrick put out its 2021 financial results, and uh, the headline number there is its net earnings fell 13% to, to $2 billion uh, US dollars. But um, the, the main thing I think uh, uh, was came out from Barrick was uh, it's increasing its returns to shareholders. It's sharing the wealth to, to boost its sustainability. Um, so as part of that, it increased its dividend to 10 cents per quarter from 9 cents previously and announced a new performance dividend policy to begin this year, which will be based on the amount of net cash on the company's balance sheet, which will potentially add up to 15 cents per share onto the base dividend in the event that its net cash position increases to $1 billion. In a further attempt to woo investors, Barrick also announced a $1 billion share repurchase program because it believes its shares are trading in a price range that does not affect the true value of the company. And a Cisco, Paul? Yes, um, a Cisco had a... Um, Quite an uncomfortable week by the looks of things. Cisco Mining said that it will develop the Winfield Gold Project in Quebec and Canada on its own as it terminated joint venture negotiations with Australia's Northern Star Resources. On the day that gold broke $1,900 per ounce for the third time ever, the company's share price was down more than 10%. Northern Star, however, remains a debt holder of the company through its $154 million uh, convertible senior unsecured debenture, uh, which is due December 2025. And we have a past uh, guest on uh, the roundtable, uh, World Copper, and it's uh, PEA. That's that's right. A couple of interesting copper stories this week. World Copper reported a PEA, preliminary economic assessment, 
for its Escalones project in central Chile for a conventional 50,000 tons per day heap leach SXEW processing operation. The company said it would produce an average of more than 52,000 tons per year of copper for 20 years, following an initial capital investment of some 438 million US dollars. Uh, the project would yield an after-tax internal rate of return of more than 46% at a $3.60 per pound copper price assumption. Um, the company is uh, now moving into a, a phase of infill and expansion drilling. And uh, I spoke with Nolan and he said uh, the company sees a possibility that the resource could double uh, due to the potential of the Mancha Amaria area there. Um, another interesting piece of news and uh, another big drill hit coming out of San Juan, Argentina, where Aldebaran Resources reported 707 meters grading 0.51% copper equivalent from the first hole completed in its 2021-2022 drill program at its Altar Copper Gold project there. Um, Argentina, um, sorry, where they're beginning to test uh, the radio porphyry. Uh, the radio porphyry is not included in the current resource estimate of Altar. So um, there's a lot of potential there. Aldebaran has uh, three drill rigs running on uh, radio, uh, presumably until uh, at least until mid-year. And lastly, uh, Hecla is growing its resources, Paul. Yes, um, exploration seems to be a, a, a major theme for uh major mi the mining companies now. Um, a week or so ago, Barrett Gold announced a 150% increase to its uh, its reserves. And now Heckler Mining has just reported its second highest silver reserves ever in its 130-year history as they increased to 200 million ounces, um, more than replacing gold and silver reserve, uh, production. Its gold reserves also increased 14% to 2.7 million ounces. Uh, the company plans... Uh, exploration spend of about $45 million this year with big spends planned at its Casabrati mine in Quebec in Canada and at Greens Creek in Alaska uh, in the United States uh, to, again, focus on replacing production and expanding uh, the high-grade reserves at both mines. Uh, the piece of news that uh, stuck out to me, and I'm going to warn you, Paul, and I'm going to warn you, Lyle, um, I have a bit of a quiz here for you or a bit of a fun guessing game. Uh, Glencore, uh, one of the world's largest global diversified natural resource companies, just had a monster uh, year end, uh, of course, uh, them being uh, exposed to all of the battery metals. Uh, they announced that its net income was $9.1 Its net income was $9.1 a 267% increase over 2020. Now, they broke down uh, the um, commodities, um, Lyle and Paul. Uh, that was coal, cobalt, copper, nickel, and zinc. Coal, cobalt, copper, nickel, and zinc. All of them had year-over-year uh, -year price increases. Which of those commodities had the biggest jump? Paul. Oh, wait, wait maybe, go... we'll give, maybe we'll give it to the guest yeah, first. Yeah, go on then. Yeah, let, give let it to the guest, guest first, Lyle. I, I hate to do this as a battery metals guy, but I think it was probably coal. Uh, what is your guess, Paul? My guess was coal as well. On the money, guys, 125% increase. Coal was a top increase here. Okay, now this will be the tricky one. What was, uh, what out of uh, coal, cobalt, copper, nickel, and zinc, which one uh, performed the least well over that year-on-year uh, -year basis? Lyle. I'm going to go with zinc, but I'm with, with, with a bit of a question mark in my voice. No, okay. 
I'm going to go with copper because the copper prices remain relatively stable over the past year. I want to thank you, Paul, for uh, making Lyle look so good on this podcast with his, uh, with a two out of two win here as well, too. Congratulations, Lyle. Uh, yes, uh, zinc, uh, uh, zinc only uh, managed to rise uh, 32%, uh, whereas, uh, uh, where is it? Um, I see that uh, copper was about uh, 51% that they showed on their year and year that went. Uh, so um, <laughs> let's, we're going to go from a quiz. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to bring you back in, Lyle. Um, uh, I want to uh, bring us up to date uh, with Giga Metals and uh, what stage is it at? Uh, it's really been a company that has been at the forefront of uh, nickel and uh, something that is driving a project in Canada. Yeah, so we've been driving this project quite a long time, Michael, as you know. Right now, we're launching the pre-feasibility stage where you know, we've done a few preliminary economic assessments over, over many years. We understand the deposit really well. And we're really excited to be now moving forward to that pre-feasibility where we're looking to build a facility that will produce a million tons of nickel over 30 plus years, sort of a generational kind of project, uh, which is really impactful for you know, the local region, the province, the, the country. Um, it's still a bunch of work ahead of us, of course. It's a big project, gonna take a lot of dollars, but um, you know, what we've got there is a lot of tons, in a very simple standard project in terms of it's a very straightforward mill process makes a very standard concentrate that can go to smelt traditional smelting like we do in Sudbury or to you know the newer hydrometallurgical approaches I've got a hydromet background uh, there's no problem in in taking this concentrate through a hydromet route as well on the path to battery metals what's the infrastructure around the project it's kind of remote, um, but it, it's not that big a stretch for us to get the BC Hydro line extended up to the site. That's about 160-ish kilometers. That's a really important aspect for us to get hydropower in there. It's not like a facility, say, Raglan in northern Quebec that's really remote um, and, and has to rely on, on fossil power or even Western Australia. You know, we've got that, that great BC grid is pretty close by. Um, I want to step back and I want to talk about uh, the uh, nickel, um, uh, the nickel sector at large, and uh, also just talking about that hydropower. We've seen uh, so much M and A into Canada uh, with um, companies moving in. They just want to take advantage of ESG, and they also seem to want to take advantage of uh, that hydropower. Uh, if you want to make a uh, company, if you want to make a mine with a low carbon output, how big advantage is it having something on the hydropower grid? And are there mines that are going to be outside of that where they're going to have to rely on, say, renewable energy sources, whether it's going to be wind or there's going to be solar? Are they going to be able to catch up? Or are they going to match somebody that's going to be on a hydropower grid? You know, that hydropower that we have in Canada, and it's in all the primary mineral regions, we've got Quebec, Ontario, Manitoba, BC, is a huge advantage because that's 24-7 power with a really low carbon footprint. And, you know, the mining process, not so bad. It's a pretty low carbon area for the mine itself. But that milling process where we have to grind up our sulfide ores, that's pretty power intensive. It takes a lot of electricity. And being able to do that with green power is a phenomenal uh, advantage for us that Canada can really sell to the world. In a lot of other jurisdictions, you just don't have that, right? You've got some great green power in Northern Europe, that's fine. But even, you know, Australia is a great producer with a lot of renewable energy potential. 
but they don't have the hydro potential. And so they can add a lot of solar, but solar is intermittent and you still have to have fossil power to back that up. And so their, their grid intensities and their local mine intensities are both going to be substantially higher in carbon footprint than projects in Canada tied to the grid. You've seen so many projects um, that have uh, actually been leading with these. Think of Nouveau-Mont Graphite in uh, Quebec. Uh, you think of uh, the copper project. The name is, escapes me, but that's with Pierre Lassonde out of Saskatchewan. Also, when uh, Agnico and uh, Kirkland Lake tied it up, uh, they were very much leading with uh, the ability with, um, you know, um, be able to be a low carbon intensity or low impact gold, just given the amount of projects uh, that they have in uh, Quebec. Um, Lyle, uh, turning to a study uh, that you did, uh, you were talking about uh, nickel in Southeast Asia and Southeast Asia is just like, um, it's huge as far as the amount of nickel development that's going on there and also how they're endowed. Uh, but you put uh, in your report, you're stating that uh, the carbon intensity is at the extreme in that region. Yeah, that's right, Michael. The, you know, they're really, it's a great physical endowment they have in, in nickel at the surface, uh, but the ore types that they have and the infrastructure they have don't lend themselves to low carbon production. And there's really two factors going on there. Most of that development has been in what we call nickel pig iron. It's the same thing as ferro-nickel, just a lower nickel grade in the product, which is a, a power intensive, electricity intensive smelting process. So most of these facilities are tied to coal-fired power plants. In fact, individually built coal-fired power plants to support the new nickel smelters. And so that's a very high carbon power source. They also have a lot of carbon emissions directly from the process. The chemistry demands that they add carbon in the form of coal or petroleum coke. And, and that requires then that they, that's how they reduce the iron and the nickel to make their product. And all that carbon leaves with the oxygen from the iron and nickel to make CO2 exiting the smelter. And so, you know, the chemistry and the power source combined make them very high carbon intensive facilities. There's been some newer facilities. Uh, they're just starting up a new high pressure acid leaching facility in Indonesia as well. It, it's a more carbon friendly technology. It doesn't require as much electricity, but they're still relying on coal fired power grids. And when you have those kind of projects, the, the reagent usage, they have to add a lot of acid to do the chemistry that they then have to neutralize. And when you add limestone to acid to neutralize it and, and pr ultimately produce your metals, you're making a lot of carbon dioxide emissions right at site out of the chemistry as well. So, you know, they're never going to be able to compete with the kind of operations that we can do develop here in Canada with both our low carbon grids for mining and milling, but also the smelting processes we have. Paul? I'm going to play devil's advocate here a little bit, Lyle, but the one thing they do have, they, they have, have volume, yeah? And as we talked about just a moment ago, Glencore's making out like a bandit because it's got coal, which is obviously carbon. So um, does, you know, does volume trump everything at the end of the day? Uh, I'll, I'll say this. There's no question they're going to make money. They're going to make a lot of money. Um, they've got a, a relatively cheap to build process. They've, they've basically made it down to Lego blocks now. They understand exactly how to build these facilities in the most economic fashion. And they're relatively straightforward to run as long as the coal price is, is reasonably low and nobody cares about the carbon footprint. But as people start to care about that, they're gonna be in a, in a bit of a dilemma. And, and that's where we're going to see the differentiation. We're not gonna shut those facilities down. The world needs a lot of nickel. 
I that was I was wondering again how that actually gets uh, to uh, automobiles, Lyle, because uh, so many people right now are just uh, there's all of the regulations that are coming in uh, just regarding your uh, carbon footprint. Um, are those batteries going to be able to get out of uh, China that are eventually are made out of that uh, nickel or is there going to be some accounting for them? I think you're going to see a, a real push to get those batteries moving from China into the rest of the world. But, you know, we're, we're announcing a lot of battery factories in North America and Europe right now because our governments and our industries, quite rightly, uh, are concerned about the strategic supply issues of putting so much of their decarbonization agenda in the hands of the Chinese. And, you know, the I think we're going to see a lot more domestic production um the the reality is that we'll see some of that flowing out but we're going to have to rely a lot more on raw materials that we can source ourselves paul how, how do the rules of origin impact uh, ev batteries for example if you make the battery in china your battery is made in china but if the nickel comes from let's say indonesia that's obviously a key component of the battery that's not from china but it's not necessarily a big component by volume or value but it could be a critically important component from the, the point of view of the final, you know, the end use customer, the purchaser. How, you know, rules of origin you know, basically allow the battery manufacturer, not perhaps willfully, to, to hide where the, the, you know, the, hey, this has got dirty nickel rather than your clean nickel. Yeah, so we, we see really three separate movements con converging here to, to really illustrate that issue. Um, the EU is moving forward with battery regulations that will, will require carbon footprinting of the batteries. So you'll have to declare as a battery manufacturer the carbon footprint of your entire supply chain, which means you need to work with your producers, your suppliers, and their suppliers, and their suppliers. And you're going to get a very good understanding very quickly of how that looks. And ultimately, phase two of their battery regulations is going to is going to require not just footprinting and declaration, but actually classes of batteries. You will only be able to sell batteries below a certain carbon footprint. Uh, the EU is always a leading jurisdiction in these areas. North America usually follows a, a few years later. But along with that, we're seeing the Global Battery Alliance really working right now on, on the rule book for this carbon footprinting. It, it's work that I'm actually engaged in. So I've got a couple of four-hour early morning meetings next week looking at the rules that we're going to establish to document the carbon footprint of batteries, including nickel, cobalt, lithium, manganese, the phosphorus, all the components, regardless of battery types, so that we have a common playing field and everybody follows the same rules that attributes the right amount of carbon footprint to these. And it's not going to be just a nickel issue. It's going to be every component of the battery. And, and that's going to be really important. And we're seeing consumers care, right? As a nickel guy, ultimately, I think we should care as much about the stainless steel that we have in our fridges and our utensils as we do about the batteries in our cars. But consumers are concerned about cars right now. And, and the kind of people that want to buy electric vehicles don't want to buy electric vehicles that have a huge carbon footprint behind them. That's their ethos. And so there's a lot of pressure on the car makers to source the best nickel that they can here in North America and Europe. It's different pressures in, in Asia. So will that result in there being a bifurcation in pricing that, uh, you know, clean nickel or green nickel or, you know, low carbon nickel 
will be able to demand a, a premium over uh, nickel that's been produced by HPAL or with you know coal-fired power behind it. I certainly believe so. Um, the you know my discussions with Benchmark and with McKenzie and others, they're they're reluctant to commit to that yet. But we already see today in the when you trade class one nickel, depending on your origin and your credentials and your form and stuff, you get different levels of premium or discount to the to the nickel price. The LME nickel price is not actually what nickel sells for, right? So if you're a great producer of a high quality product, you're going to get a premium to producers of a lower quality product. And quality can be pretty broadly defined. So I think you're going to see those premiums reflected quite significantly between the best and the worst producers for the battery market, for sure. Whether that reaches down to the stainless market, I think that's a ways away yet. Thank you. Lyle, what's a full supply chain carbon accounting? So it's really important that, that we start talking about what I think of as kind of the dirty little secrets of, of the industry. We All of our producers like to talk about their scope one emissions and their scope two emissions. Those are the emissions we generate at our sites or from the imported energy we use. But what we're really not talking about as much is what's called scope three emissions, our full supply chain. And that's where we can have a really significant impact. You might have a facility that's got very low emissions at its own gates, but it uses a lot of reagents or consumables that have a very high carbon footprint behind them. And when you wrap all of that in, it can be a really big change. I was looking at a project recently, uh, they just released a life cycle analysis this week and 50% of their carbon footprint for the project was due to the reagents that they use in the flotation process. Um, you know, the, the fuels for mining and the electricity for the mill were less than 50%. That's an astounding gap if you only talk scope one and scope two. It's really important that we look at this. And that's why the Global Battery Alliance is looking at that full life cycle analysis type approach. And companies in the space, the producers, the miners, the, the processors, the smelters, they've got to start looking at this much more intensively. The institutes have done a good job at building industry-wide LCAs but it's going to become very important for companies to be very familiar with this for themselves and to be doing their own independent LCAs that, so that they can go and talk intelligently to their customers who are demanding information. Lyle, do we have the right price uh, for nickel? And uh, do uh, last I checked, it's, uh, it's uh, just about $11 a pound, um, um, uh, uh, $11. Uh, but um, is it? Do people have confidence uh, that they can invest in mines in North America and develop them? Well, I, I think you know. There's no question that the kind of price we have today is sufficient to make any half decent North American project economic. Um, you know, we've got some projects that have sat on the shelf for a long time because they don't make a lot of sense at five dollar nickel, and that's why a project like Turnigan hasn't been developed yet. Right at five bucks, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But when you've got a million tons, uh, that price differential can result in a lot of earnings very quickly. Whether there's trust in both the price being supported at that level in the long term, because we're making these investments for 30-year kind of projects, and the downstream processing being put in place. I think we're seeing right now that the miners haven't jumped in because there isn't a high degree of trust that all the pieces will be there, because it's not just a mining story. 
Um, when you're in the nickel business, it's equally about the processing and there simply isn't enough processing capacity. If we were to build, you know, we were talking earlier about the these four lower grade projects in, in Canada. Um, if we were to build all of those starting now and bring 150,000 tons of nickel supply to the market in a few years time, where's that going to go? There's no capacity in Canada to actually treat that and process it into the raw materials that that the EV industry demands. So that whole midstream processing sector also needs to grow. And it's not much use building a mine if you don't have somewhere to process it. So there's a whole industrial strategy component that's really important for North America and Europe to wrap their heads around how they're going to incent the entire supply chain, not just give a bunch of money so somebody will build a gigafactory. A gigafactory is useless without raw materials. You really need to, to develop that running supply chain in front of it. What type of nickel is uh, needed for making uh, lithium ion batteries? Are they a higher purity or are they higher chemistry, say like uh, lithium itself? Yeah, so we need super high purity for the metals that go into lithium ion batteries. That, that purity drives performance and longevity. If you don't have good purity, batteries don't last as long as they start to fail. And that's why you see a lot of the nickel that's been used in them in over the last several years has been developed from what we call class one nickel, which is you know high purity metallic nickel, 99.8% nickel or better, that's then dissolved and precipitated as a nickel intermediate for the batteries. And, and that whole process of making metal and then making the battery materials is a great set of purification steps. And as you go through that, it's expensive, right? And so now we're starting to see movement to take nickel intermediates like mixed hydroxide precipitates from the high pressure acid leach facilities or mixed sulfides or nickel mat and leach them and directly make the battery materials out of it. It's a little riskier to go that route, but it, you know, it's the same chemistry as we use in a metal refinery. You're just producing a different product instead of electro winning or, or reducing a nickel metal. But you need that super high purity. You need to get, a, get it away, get the nickel away from copper and iron and a bunch of other things, zinc as well. These are all impurities that can interact within the battery and, and create problems. So that purity is really, really critical. Let's turn to our number of the week, Lyle. We always start with our guests. Uh, Lyle, what's your number this week? So my number is seven, uh, and it's seven for two reasons. I'm tracking right now seven significant Canadian nickel projects that together have seven times the, the declared resources of all the U.S. projects that I'm tracking. There aren't as many in the U.S., and when you think about, you know, we've got seven times more nickel that's not being produced today in Canada than they have in the U.S. And the U.S. being 10 times bigger in terms of people and car production, you know, there's a real trade issue arising if, if the U.S. producers and governments are going to look to strategically source and, and we call it ally shoring the, the production. They've really got to look north. We've got the raw materials that they need. They're short on nickel and some others, and we're going to need to develop those partnerships because that seven becomes 70. Can you name those seven? I hope so. So <laughs> turn again, for sure. Yeah. Um, Baptiste, I understand you talked to the FPX about Baptiste recently. Canada Nickel's got the Crawford deposit, very similar to Turnigan. Uh, the Dumont deposit in Quebec, those are the four big ones. And then there's some smaller ones in, in Manitoba. We've got the Maqua Mayville deposit. We've got uh, the Monago deposit. That's six. And there's one more. Oh, 
Eagle's Nest, Noron. Noron's a big story, right? Um, that's <laughs> not a heard huge of it. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? That, that you know, there's been a big bidding war over Noron, but that's not a great nickel project. It's it's hmm. great quality, but it's not that big. It's 150,000 tons of declared nickel resources versus a million tons in some of these larger projects. Hmm. Great quality. It's a fantastic ore body. It's just not as big as we'd like to see. Paul, your number of the week. My number's a, a little bit uh, bigger than that. My number is 30 trillion US dollars. Um, and that's the amount of investable assets owned by baby boomers that women are uh, poised to control a large percentage of, a large portion of by 2030, according to CNBC. Um, why did I pick this number? Many companies have asked me about how they can reach and engage with millennials. Nobody's ever asked me how can they reach women investors. Um, so if women will increasingly be holding the wealth, snapping out of gender assumptions about who investors are will probably be a good start for the junior sector and the mining sector if they do indeed wish to raise money in the future. My number of the week is 141%. On a yearly basis, uh, the Chinese Association of Automobile Manufacturers reported that new electrical vehicle sales was up 141%. Uh, again, electric vehicles look like they're here. And I think with these gas prices, uh, they're going to continue to get uh, momentum. Uh, more consequentially, uh, the car manufacturer said uh, that uh, companies do not expect the removal of subsidies to have any material bearing on sales in the long run. That number was reported from BMO. Uh, as we head out, uh, Lyle, is there anything uh, that you'd like to announce uh, regarding Giga uh, over the next 12 months? Uh, I really can't announce anything. Of course, standard disclaimer rules apply, but we really expect to be getting our pre-feasibility study done and, and moving this project forward, perhaps with a little bit sharper pencil than we used in a pretty conservative preliminary economic assessment. Uh, and, and we really hope to be advancing that project to supply our North American needs. Follow me at Michael McRae. McRae is with two C's. Niels is at Niels underscore C. Paul has got a new handle that is CGS 2022 Gold. And Lyle, how would you like people to get a hold of you? Easiest place to find me is on LinkedIn. Hit me up there. Uh, that's where most of my nickel related content is delivered. If you like what you hear, tell a friend. Don't forget to subscribe. On behalf of Paul Harris, Lyle Tritton, and myself, have a pleasant weekend.